Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good morning, good morning. Today is Friday, March 25th, and welcome to this month's EM Lens and Look Through podcast. I am your ever-endearing host, Damian Sassauer, and today we are joined by Mr. Blaise Anton, Managing Director and Head of Sovereign Research at TCW. A real privilege to have you here, Blaze. Thanks so much for taking time to join us. Of course, Damian. It's my pleasure to be with you at these um, complicated times. Well, complicated times uh, is the lead into my first question for you, kind sir. I mean, Putin's war in Ukraine has leveled large losses on EM creditors since international sanctions went into effect. I'm wondering if you can help our audience better understand where bondholders currently are and, quite frankly, what comes next. I mean, interesting times, to say the least. I mean, do we really believe that Russia's going to default on its debt? I mean, and to that point, I mean, is it possible that a run on the ruble may even happen? So I'd love to get your thoughts on all of that and then some. <laughs> well, that's a great question. Um, I think investors, emerging market investors, um, are, are, are asking themselves this uh, very set of questions every day, um, every hour. Um, you know, I, it, it's, it's complex. Uh, you know, I, I would start off by saying, um, you know, I think uh, the markets were clearly caught off guard by this war. Um, there was an expectation that somehow it would be, a, it would be averted at the last minute. Um, that didn't happen. And here we are now on the one-month anniversary of the war. And I do call it a war. I know many people refer to it as a conflict. But uh, to me, this, this looks like a war, and, and that's how I'm going to refer to it for the rest of our conversation. Um, and I think that's how markets need to understand and appreciate it. Um, you know, bondholders have... Um, you know, did begin de-risking somewhat uh, in the Russia complex and the Ukraine complex um, as we got closer to the start of the war. Um, I, I do think uh, that by the time the war began, um, uh, thinking about Russia, that, that people in sort of EM-dedicated investors were largely underweight Russia on the external debt side, partly because valuations uh, were, were, were pretty stretched um, even before uh, war risk uh, came onto investor radar screens over the early part of the winter and into January and, and then, of course, in February. Um, but also, um, obviously, the headlines were getting worse, um, and, and there was very little priced in, and, and so people were stepping away. Uh, on the local uh, debt side, it was more complicated. As you probably know, before yes. this crisis erupted, uh, Russia had some very um, interesting, um, uh, 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 compelling fundamentals. Um, inflation was still rising, but was seen to be very near its peak before the war began. And the Central Bank of Russia had been very aggressive in hiking rates, moving far ahead of most other central banks, even in emerging markets, in terms of tightening. And the ruble was seen as undervalued, um, given the price of oil and given uh, and, and on the assumption that, that there would not be a war. And so I think many investors found themselves early this year either with a market weight uh, position in the local bonds or even, in some cases, small overweight positions. Uh, that obviously um, became untenable uh, by, uh, by late February, um, even before the war erupted. Um, but unfortunately, the local market froze up uh, to a considerable degree uh, several days before the invasion of Ukraine. And uh, many investors uh, you know, were unable to uh, to shed risk uh, by the time the war had started. And of course, as you know, the market shut down 
completely at that point. Um, and now we have this situation where there's an offshore over-the-counter market uh, where investors have been reducing exposure to OFZs uh, at deeply distressed levels. The onshore market just reopened in recent days. Um, and, and uh, of course, it did uh, reflect uh, some of the um, some of the bad news, but is trading at a completely different place from where the <laughs> offshore market is. And the offshore market is where foreign investors are operating. So uh, it, it's quite a difficult um, uh, environment. Um, I, I think that people are looking to reduce their OFC risk. At the same time, I think some investors uh, who uh, don't have uh, pressures from specific clients to get out immediately, uh, maybe taking a wait and see attitude. Uh, you know, marking OFZs at five cents, for example, uh, right. and assuming that they uh, may be stuck with them for an extended period of time, but perhaps at some point down the road, they'll be able to get out at, at much, much more attractive levels. So I think there's a, there's a dual approach here. There's the get me out now, and there's the, well, I'm stuck with these for a long time. I'm going to hold on and see what happens over the next year or two. Um, and I think the market is kind of in both places at the moment. Well, you know, I mean, Blaze, I have to ask you and stick with this topic, I mean, because it's just so fascinating to me, not necessarily what's going on. We all, you know, we, we can bleed that one to death, but, but, you know, from a portfolio manager's perspective, and specifically for me, from the perspective of EMB, the world's largest emerging market bond ETF, you know, run by iShares, or even Vanguard or Invesco, any of these large EM dollar bond ETFs, right? I mean, what do you see happening with those Russia holdings if they have residual exposure to Russia? I mean, I don't think ETFs can create a side pocket, can they? I mean, is it just going to sit there and then maybe at some point in the distant future <laughs> there's value there again? I mean, what are your thoughts on how ETFs, who are obviously benchmarked to you know the MBs of the world, how do they? How do you think they manage this situation? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I'm not an ETF manager myself, so uh, you know, I can't <laughs> for them. Uh, I think it's relevant for them that Russia will be removed from the EM indexes uh, at the end of this month. So that's already coming up next week. Uh, that may uh, change how they operate or how they think about their Russia positions post-March 31. But to be honest, uh, no, I think they're limited in terms of what they can do. And as I, as I said earlier, there's a, there's, a, there's a divided market here. And, and obviously their exposure uh, you know, is, is, you know, they're, they're stuck with, with this sort of offshore OTC market, which is not deeply liquid, I should say at all. Right. Um, and, and, and they're kind of, they're kind of in a, in a difficult spot. I suspect, um, you know, they, they may sell what they can and, and hold on to what they can't sell and, and work their way out over time. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough spot for them to be in. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's really the consensus there. Well, look, let's shift gears because we can bleed Russia to death and, and, and the war in Ukraine to death. And by the way, at Bloomberg, we do call it a war. Uh, that comes from on high, so we agree with you on that one. But, you know, let's talk about the Fed. I mean, the Fed hiked the Fed funds target range by 25 basis points, you know, to um, really to 50 basis points at the at the upper bound. And so the market's currently pricing in quite a bit through year end and some of the uh the new estimates that i'm hearing from places such as Citigroup, i mean you know three percent by the end of this year i mean amazing so you know to make matters even more challenging we've got these inflationary pressures building we've got real policy rates that are negative in most markets and you know for me in this world of low and negative real yields what is the role of emerging market local and hard currency debt and do you see a continuation of this aggressive policy tightening that we've seen by em central banks over the coming months and year? Wow, great questions. Uh, let me start by, by saying, uh, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear that both emerging market and developed market central banks are going to have to remain relatively hawkish uh, to deal with these inflationary pressures. 
which were already building, of course, before the war, which is right. now intensified pressures via both the uh, energy and the food price channel. Uh, it's also the case, though, that many emerging market central banks are much further along than developed market central banks in their monetary policy cycles. I mentioned Russia in its pre-war form uh, before uh, uh, in our conversation. Um, but I think that the, the main takeaway for emerging market central banks uh, at this point generally is that they probably don't need to be as aggressive as the Fed to navigate the most recent inflationary shocks that we're seeing from higher commodity prices uh, that have been driven by the war. For sure, they'll have to remain vigilant, um, and uh, uh, you know the they will they will have to persist in the removal of monetary accommodation. Um, but I think they're probably also ready to to finalize or pause their monetary tightening once inflation expectations stabilize. By contrast, uh, the Fed, obviously having started considerably later, and the ECB, which hasn't started at all yet with its interest rates, uh, you know their journey is going to be a longer one in terms of removing excess uh, monetary liquidity from the system. Uh, I, you know, with respect to, to market opportunities, I think you know, the relatively higher nominal and real yields we see in EM uh, does make EM debt attractive. Um, in fact, it may even be the case that a more aggressive no normalization of monetary policy by DM central banks could help reduce global volatility and risk, which would ultimately benefit emerging market debt. Uh, but in the near term, Inflation is likely to increase further, certainly during the second quarter of this year, and, and, and quite possibly for longer, um, since none of us has a, have any idea when this war will end. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the commodity price shock is going to take some time to feed its way through. Once the shock's absorbed, uh, headline inflation should tend to decelerate uh, due to the disappearance of some supply-side factors related to the pandemic and, and the war. Um, uh, but overall, inflation may, may remain somewhat elevated compared to, you know, the experience of the past years. Um, and, uh, you know, and that, and that, that means I think that we, we can assume that the, the extended period of ultra loose monetary and financial conditions is ending. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, I think it's, it represents risks to our asset class. Uh, but again, the fact that central banks and, and so many EMs have, have, have front run developed market central banks, um, and the likelihood that at some point the commodity price cycle rolls over. Uh, you know, I, I think that should be positive um, over the course of the next 12 to 18 months for emerging market debt, um, uh, you know, which as, 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 as will the, uh, the further removal of the, um, the, the pandemic's costs uh, and the, uh, the required fiscal re response to the pandemic. Um, you know, the sort of as we move past this, I, I think there is there is scope for EM uh, to, to draw to draw inflows and, and, and to look more attractive. But again, the short term is, is certainly difficult. There's no denying that. Yeah, as we get to the second half of this year, we get some pretty big base effects too in terms of CPI and a lot of the inflation prints. So yeah, the hurdle is, is definitely, uh, definitely going to ease a bit. But let's shift gears. Let's look at, you know, amidst all that's gone on in just the last month, South Korea elected a new president, right? We had a leadership change at the top, and, you know, the EM election calendar is really starting to pick up steam, right, with investors readying for leadership changes in places like uh, Hungary, Colombia, uh, the Philippines, and Brazil. And, you know, my question for you is, do you see the populist trend that is currently perhaps overtaking some countries in Latin America, like Chile and Peru, spreading to other regions? And, and with that in mind, how should investors position amid the politics of the moment? 
Wow, great questions. Um, I guess I would start by saying I, I think there is there is real differentiation uh, politically uh, and electorally across across the globe and across global emerging markets. But regarding the two countries specifically, you you mentioned in your question, Chile and Peru. Um, you know, I, I think to some extent uh, the recent electoral outcomes we saw there reflect the penalization of incumbents due yeah. to the impact of the pandemic. Um, and that may be that may be more important than, than than sort of underlying ideological shifts in those countries. Although I don't want to minimize the possibility that there's also an important ideological shift that, that's occurred um, in Ecuador. We saw the political pendulum surprisingly shift to the center right early on in the pandemic. And then I, I would say that while there is a good probability that left wing populist candidates win upcoming presidential elections in Colombia and Brazil. Uh, on present course, it, it looks at the same time like populism will probably be defeated in Argentina next year. Um, so it's kind of a mixed bag, I would say, in that region. Um, and I, I guess maybe the most important takeaway from all the back and forth in Latin American elections is that democracy does seem to still be functioning rather well in the yeah. region. Um, and I know that itself is in question uh, in the not too distant past. Looking forward, uh, you know, we have an election in Hungary upcoming next week. I regret that it may not be fully democratic, um, but having said that, while the deck is stacked against the opposition there, it's still possible that the opposition bloc can pull off a victory. Uh, I, I wouldn't give them a very high probability of success, but but maybe a one in four chance of doing this, uh, which you know, which does suggest that, that you know, democracy, despite all of the obstacles in Hungary, is still is still alive. Um, uh, if if it's not well, uh, you know, in the Philippines where we have elections upcoming, I, I don't think uh, investors are, are, are super enthusiastic about the likely outcome. But I, I do think that um, we're likely to get regime continuity there. And, and that in a world with so much unpredictability, a little continuity does have its, um, in this case, I would describe them as modest benefits. Uh, you know, for me, if I look ahead a bit, I think arguably the biggest, most important election on the emerging markets horizon um, with, with you know, potential for a real policy pivot is in Turkey uh, coming up uh, next year. It's required by June of next year. Uh, could come a bit sooner, but, but I'm just assuming that it won't. Uh, and so it'll be June. Uh, Turkey's also not a pristine democracy at this point, but the opposition party victories in high-profile elections um, at the uh, local level in Turkey before the pandemic uh, suggested very clearly that the Turkish population remain strongly rooted in democracy and, and um, in favor of, of, you know, more orthodox uh, politicians than those who currently run Turkey. So I, I, I think we're going to get a political sea change in Turkey next year based on the polling I'm seeing, based on the trends and, and also the, the macro fundamentals of the country, which are quite difficult. Um, I think that could tee Turkey up as the single best investment opportunity across global EM in 2023. Um, as you know, foreign involvement in Turkish markets has fallen to record lows uh, due to President Erdogan's heterodox policy mix. A reversal of those policies, I, I think, could unleash a torrent of portfolio inflows, almost irrespective of what's going on uh, at the Fed or the ECB or at any of the major central banks. That's how under-owned Turkey is at present. Um, the only problem for this uh, you know, potentially great investment story is that it's very hard to front run it, um, given the powers of incumbency um, and the other risks uh, that Turkey faces in the run up to those elections. So um, I think, uh, you know, when people start to move in, it's going to be a stampede. Um, there'll be liquidity <laughs> issues around that. Um, but there's potentially great opportunity on the backside of, of a regime change in Turkey.
Yeah, we don't disagree with that at all. And you're absolutely right. It's a very bimodal outcome, right, in terms of, you know, when do investors get in and how do they position. But I, I completely agree with you. Um, you know, look, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on China, <laughs> but uh, clearly the nation's facing a slew of challenges, right? Property sector, crackdown on big tech, so on and so forth. And, you know, just briefly, you know, what are your thoughts on China today? I mean, and certainly, you know, the property sector, which comprises a very big part of their um, uh, of their dollar bonds, and, and to, uh, to that extent, you know, CGBs, you know, and the value therein. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Important questions. Uh, you know, I guess I would start by stating the obvious, which is that China is, you know, grappling with many of the same challenges facing other major economies. You know, how to deliver on more broadly shared growth, how to rein in the anti-competitive behavior of large tech platforms, how to cut carbon emissions, and then perhaps uh, of critical importance, how to reduce the cost of living for the middle class. In China's case, this is focused, I think, on housing, healthcare, and education. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say that China's leaders um, also realize that given the aforementioned imperatives, imperatives and the u- unique demographic headwinds that they face, property-led growth is a dead end for China at this point. Um, you know, w- while addressing these issues, you know, may be beneficial for long-term growth, doing it all at once in an uncoordinated fashion is, is just too harmful for short-term growth and obviously destabilizing the financial markets. I, I, I found it reassuring to hear senior officials recently say that China's you know, mix of economic policies will be better coordinated going forward. Uh, that's great to hear. I, I guess, you know, we would say to that, you're talking the talk. Now let's see China's leaders walk the talk. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully they do. Uh, you know, I, I guess I would add, uh, you know, given the current growth headwinds, including their handling of COVID, that we're pretty cautious on Chinese credit. We don't think the property sector has hit bottom yet, although we do see more efforts to ensure that strong developers are able to access financing for, uh, you know, for Chinese FX and rates. Um, you know, we certainly think China offers attractive yield to vol for global fixed income investors, mm-hmm. uh, and their low vol makes them an attractive defensive position for EM fixed income investors. Um, I, I suppose the risk to this uh, story about defensiveness is the, the possibility that China allows itself to get sucked directly into Russia's war against Ukraine. Uh, right. Obviously, the defensive nature of Chinese fixed income would be very much in doubt in that scenario because I think the U.S. has made clear that the sanctions uh, dragnet that's that's gripped Russia would uh, you know would be expanded uh, with some of it moving to China in the in the event of such an outcome. Not our base case that China heads in that direction, but but obviously the Russians would love to see the Chinese supporting them actively yeah. and directly. No, I mean, I mean, absolutely, a, a huge risk, and and I find that very interesting. Your thoughts on China, on the China property sector, you know, because you know a lot of investors, obviously, bottom fishers and what have you. I mean, are looking at some of these valuations and and getting very excited about it. And, and I couldn't agree with you more. I think there is more pain to follow. I mean, China has not been uh, has not come clean, quite frankly, in many of the you know policy changes that they're suggesting, and we just don't see any easing out of the central bank yet, right? So, I mean, where's the support coming from? And, and you're absolutely right. Property-led growth is just, in my opinion, it's, it's, uh, you, you may as well be waiting for Godot there. So, um, so look, let's, let's shift gears a bit and let's, let's, let's discuss foreign positioning because obviously it's gotten very, very light specifically in EM local assets. And so, you know, as we push further into uh, 2022, what are your thoughts um, on portfolio flows? We know, as you mentioned, that uh, central banks are tightening the reins, and, and, and so that might, you know, deter a few investors from reaching into their pockets and 
moving their money abroad into emerging markets. But what do you what do you feel are the key drivers for EM portfolios through the end of this year? A good question. Um, you know, I, I would say um, I would start off, I think, by saying that you know it's important to remember that that um, you know the EM investor community is pretty broad based. Um, you know, there are a lot of different types of investors in emerging markets and emerging market debt. Um, and, and depending on who you are, you look at valuations, I guess, somewhat differently. Um, you know, for, for us, um, you know, we see on the emerging market external debt side, sovereign spreads, uh, you know, are pretty attractive around 470 basis points compared to longer term averages around 300. Mm -hmm. um, and they're also attractive relative to developed market credit spreads. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, the, the EM investor community, you know, whether it's dedicated investors like ourselves and our peers or, you know, sovereign wealth funds or central banks or local bank and pension funds from the countries themselves or, or crossover investors from the U.S. and global fixed income space, you know, everybody is sort of, uh, you know, thinking about where we are in the, in the global credit cycle a little bit differently perhaps. Um, and about, as a consequence, sort of what, what the different valuations are telling them. Um, you, you know, I, I think an important point to note uh, is that in the past nine months, the amount of negative yielding fixed income debt has fallen from more than $15 trillion to less than $5 trillion. I mean, that's right. a huge move. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're no longer in a world without yield. Uh, and given these more attractive valuations, uh, you know, coupled with the significant EM-specific risks that are playing out presently, it's a bit hard to imagine, you know, sustained inflows from crossover U.S. or developed market fixed income investors occurring in the near term, probably pretty much any time over the course of this calendar year. Um, you know, over the longer time horizon, you know, we still see EM fixed income as the fastest growing segment of the global fixed income market. It represents almost a quarter of the global fixed income universe. Uh, and it's structurally underowned by global fixed income investors. So, you know, I, I guess if we look out a decade or more, we would envision this underweight being gradually covered uh, by such investors. But, but you know, that's a gradual process and unlikely to be one that occurs uh, um, in any significant way during 2022, given the Fed and and um, and the other you know EM specific risks that are out there. Um, you know, for I mean, we could talk if you'd like. I'd be happy to talk a little bit about local currency EM versus hard currency EM. Um, let yeah. Me, let me see where you want to take the conversation. Well, I mean, before we even do that, you know, I want to stick with what you were saying. I mean, talk to me about that EM investor base. You know, who is, you know, the marginal risk taker in emerging markets today? Is it, you know, is it, um, uh, you know, institutional investors like pensions and endowments? Is it fund managers? I imagine that's probably the case. But then within the fund manager landscape, you know, what's the role of some of these large ETFs and, you know, the buying and selling and the redemption creations and all that stuff that goes hand in hand with that? I'm curious, you know, like, you know, who are you afraid of, I guess, when you're entering into a position, who are you most mindful of, you know, that, you know, that investor might be heading in the wrong direction, you know, if you follow me, you know, who's swinging the biggest bat these days? Yeah, no, that, that's obviously, you know, super relevant at a moment like this. I, I, I think it's, let's take a look at, I'm not an EM equity specialist, but if we, if we look at sort of what we've seen there year to date, uh, there were some inflows into EM equity markets at the start of the year. Uh, that all stopped uh, with, uh, the 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 extreme increase in geopolitical risk premium and the impact that's having on higher commodity prices, 
which uh, you know has a potential impact on the EPS outlook for you know for a lot of EM equities. I, I think the um, you know by contrast, EMFX um, you know saw uh, uh, you know has seen I would argue a bit of surprising stability in the most recent period. Um, you know after you know selling off for a you know for a, a sustained period of time. You know owing to you know intensifying Fed rate hike expectations, uh, you know, in a period of dollar strength, we've, we've seen some, we've seen some stability on the EMFX side, uh, more recently, a bit surprising, I would say, given, given the, um, you know, fact that there's a war going on uh, between two large emerging markets. Um, you know, I, I think as we look across the landscape, I, I think the, um, you know, as I said before, the, the mix of investors, you know, we don't expect to see much from crossover investors. Uh, emerging market dedicated investors are seeing some outflows, um, although it's more probably on the retail side than the institutional side. Um, and so I think most investors are carrying, you know, comfortably large cash positions um, at present uh, uh, to absorb uh, additional outflows if necessary. Um, so it's a complex landscape to be sure. Uh, on the ETF side, I, 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 I to me, I, because of their retail nature, I, I'm just a little skeptical that um, that they're going to be seeing positive flows in the short term, uh, given all of the, uh, the the idiosyncratic risks across EM and the Fed outlook. But uh, you know, I, I've been surprised before on the flow side, and it's not impossible that I could be surprised again here. I don't think it's likely in the near term. Um, I, I think they will uh, probably be dealing with uh, you know some continuation of outflows in the near term. Beyond that, though, I think it will depend, you know, if the war ends um, in a month or two, uh, I'm not sure that should be the base case, but if it does, um, and we can get some sort of detente in Eastern Europe and commodity prices come off the boil, you know, I think they're, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the pressure on the Fed to go faster, you know, maybe eases up a little bit and then, um, and then, and then people start looking around at risk assets again. Uh, it's a. It's. A, I wish I had the answers to all your questions, Damien. No, I. I, I would be. <laughs> we'd be in a better place uh, if if I did. Uh, if, I you, the, if, you, uh, if you had the answers to these like, questions, we would be sitting on a beach sipping margarita somewhere. I'm sure of it. You know, but um, but no, I. I look, I take your point. I mean, I I, I agree with you. I think um, it's going to be a very challenging environment. But you know, look, the Fed could turn around tomorrow, and you know, equities can you know start plunging, and the Fed put is back in. You know, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, risk taking starts to take off and EM is the recipient of that. But, you know, I, I agree with you. I don't necessarily believe, at least given what I'm hearing out of the Fed or seeing out of markets, that that's really anyone's base case at this stage. Um, look, you know, you mentioned it earlier. You talked about EM currency risk, you know, and the outsized impact it has historically had on EM local rates performance, right? So much so, I think, that, you know, a lot of investors, Japan Post comes to mind, um, that, that they're employing EM rates on an FX hedged basis as a complement to their sort of U.S. Treasury positions, right? Basically trying to hedge out the currency risk and taking advantage of those high nominal yields in EM local debt. And I'm curious, your thoughts on this as a viable investment strategy going forward, more for institutions than retail, and, and, and whether or not there's any legs to it? Good questions. Historically, emerging market rates have been the main contributor to local markets performance due to the higher nominal and real yields in many EM countries. Um, you know, EM rates offer an opportunity 
albeit one that will materialize more fully once domestic inflation shows signs of stabilizing. Uh, I think that would be a moment where we could expect to see uh, any number of monetary policy cycles uh, finalizing across emerging markets, um, which obviously uh, has typically been a good time to get involved in in local rates. Uh, As for EMFX, I, I, we're a bit skeptical that it provides a good good hedging opportunity here, given the uh, elevated levels of global volatility. Uh, but once the war is over, um, you know, global vol uh, should should subside to some degree, and and uh, EMFX, you know, uh, you know, hedging opportunities may return. Uh, you know, I guess the way we think about it, it's you know, it's really only viable in select markets where there is a developed, uh, you know, where, where there's, where there's sort of flexibility. Um, um, you know, the, the, the level of volatility and FX implied yields in many EM local markets, um, you know, it, it makes it difficult to create a steady relative carry profile over longer periods of time. That's something we've seen. And I think that's particularly true where NDS, so the predominant FX hedge, mm-hmm. a country like Indonesia would be an example of that. Yeah, no, no, I hear you. I mean, there's a lot of volatility when you're trying to roll one month non deliverable forwards in some of these markets, right? For sure, for sure. But, yeah. um, but no, no, I mean, look, you know, I, I guess we're getting to the end game here. And, and, you know, I can't let you leave without asking you this final question. I mean, look, the war, everything that's been going on in the world, really, at the end of the day, it kind of all started, you know, back in 2019, you know, with the coronavirus. And, and, and it continues to send shockwaves through global financial markets. I mean, most recently, the lockdown in Shenzhen. So, you know, for our audience, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You know, what, you know, if you could just touch on what vulnerabilities, in your opinion, were exposed by the pandemic, and and looking back, really, what surprised you the most? You know, um, for me, I could tell you it was the ability for central banks, you know, globally, to come up with novel ways to sort of uh, mitigate the risks of the pandemic, right? And you know, it never ceases to amaze me. You know, the Fed basically just had to say it was going to buy high-yield credit and look at what happened to the markets. So, you know, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. You know, what surprised you about the pandemic? What have you learned, you know, and, and, and you know, about the financial markets and about EM? I, I guess the first surprise uh, was that we had a global pandemic, right? I mean, it's been 100 years since the last one, and nobody uh, was alive uh, then who was alive now and, and working in our in- industry. So, you know, the, the, this market, um, all markets are terrible at, at anticipating much less pricing, you know, tail risk events. Uh, so, you know, we were all floored by, by the events and we all ran home to work in our, in our, in our, you know, home offices or, or wherever we were at our kitchen tables or wherever people might've been. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, the, 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 the next big surprise was the ability of central banks and governments the world over to respond to the pandemic with unprecedented monetary and fiscal support. Um, and the fiscal part of it was important. We saw it in the U S we saw it in Europe. We saw it, uh, you know, in Japan and, and elsewhere. We saw it to a lesser degree in, uh, in emerging markets, but, but certainly many of the countries of the MB, sort of middle-income countries, did have space. Um, and even where they didn't have space, they, um, they, uh, they provided fiscal support. Um, and, and growth rebounded rapidly, um, uh, you know, much faster and much more strongly than had been anticipated. And I think that was, that was another real surprise. Um, you know, I, I guess the next surprise, obviously, was the, the, the speed with which effective vaccines were created to limit the downsides of COVID and to get us past the pandemic faster. Um, you know, the, the, the rollout has not been ideal. Um, you know, we've given, I think, more than 11 billion vaccine jabs globally. 
Um, you know, this represents more than one and a half vaccine doses for everyone on Earth over the age of five. That's great. Um, but of course, in many high income countries like the U.S. where we live, uh, there's a lot of people who've had three doses, while in some large countries in Africa, for example, in Nigeria, Egypt, Kenya, you know, only a minority of the population has even received one dose. So, um, you know, I, I do think, though, uh, that, you know, as we think about, you know, the, the next 12 months and emerging from the pandemic, um, it's important to, the combination of vaccines, which continue to roll out, especially in emerging markets and low-income countries, and herd immunity, um, you know, is taking us further and further with every passing month past this period of time, um, which, uh, you know, is certainly positive from an economic standpoint. Um, you know, economic activity is largely back to normal, leaving aside the cost now of the Russia-Ukraine war and its impact on commodity prices and what sanctions are doing, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to trade channels and the like. But, um, you know, we're, we're, we're moving towards a, the phase where COVID is endemic rather than a pandemic. Um, I certainly think that's, that's positive for growth everywhere. And I think, you know, even if there is going to be episodic events, uh, you mentioned Shenzhen, um, you know, there, there's, there, there, these, these lockdowns, these quarantines are going to be localized. I mean, China does have this unfortunate view that, that zero COVID is, is an appropriate objective. I, I don't think they really believe that anymore, but they're kind of stuck with it to some degree through the party Congress in the, um, in the fall. Um, but I think once, once, once the party Congress is out of the way, I think China probably will have a more realistic and, and maybe even ahead of it, it will phase into that more realistic approach to COVID, uh, which, which is important because China is the second biggest economy in the world and, and a key part of global supply chains. Um, so I, I kind of feel like a year from now we'll be in a, in a, in a, in a COVID fully in the rear view mirror. Um, but increasingly it's already there. And I, I think that, um, you know, the, uh, on the bright side, the high inflation that we're currently experiencing, uh, you know, could help a bit on the margins with the big run-up in public debt that occurred in the, as a consequence of the response to COVID. Um, you know, we'll sort of inflate some of that debt away with high nominal GDP growth, um, uh, thanks in part to the, uh, the significant increase in inflation. So for fixed income investors, we don't like inflation, but we, we don't mind the benefits of declining public debt stocks, um, which, which can come from, from higher nominal GDP growth. So it's a mixed bag, but I, I think, you know, we're moving past the pandemic. Um, that's critically important. And, um, and even those emerging markets, which have been very um, uh, uh, behind the curve in terms of getting vaccines rolled out, you know, their populations tend to be younger. Um, there's probably a high degree of herd immunity in many of those populations at this point, and they show very little interest in having broad economic shutdowns or even large localized shutdowns like China does um, uh, as we move to the next phase here. So I'm, I'm optimistic on the public health uh, uh, and, and, you know, recovery from the pandemic phase um, over the course of the next 12 months. Blaze, thank you so very much for sharing your thoughts, sharing your views with us here today. And thank you to our audience, our VM enthusiasts, for your time and your continued interest. Keep well, stay safe, and keep moving forward. Thank you so much. Take care.